<clears throat> we know it's cold, but it's nice to be sunny. And it's great to be with you today as we open up another, another view at the book of Romans, another uh, installment of God's grace to us as we've been looking at Romans 8, and especially this passage from 828 to the end of 39. But today we're looking at, I'll be reading 28 through 30, and we'll be looking at 29 through 30 this morning. Uh, but let me pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your kindness and mercy, O Lord, for those of us who have read your word and understand as what it says about you and what it says about us, Lord. We certainly realize that we are in debt to your mercy. We realize that without your forgiveness, without your kindness, without you turning your face towards us first, we would not, could not, will not be able to know your love, to know your kindness, to know your the hope that you give us, the assurance that we read about here in this letter that you've given to us through your servant Paul. We pray, Father, that these familiar words again will fall fresh upon us, that they'll be exciting to us again, that they'll be grounded even more in our faith, grounded more in our hearts, that we will hide these words in our heart so that we will live to glorify you and, and, and not sin against you, not look like uh, our earlier life, our former life in Adam, but our our life being conformed and being transformed into Christ. So, Lord, may your powerful word work in us today as we trust it will. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 28, 8, 28 through 30. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And may God bless the reading of his word this morning. Something I read to you last week, a summary statement of uh, Romans 8.28 is uh, from the New Bible Commentary, which is, uh, there's an older one and a newer one, and both are, are good. Uh, it says this, that 28 promises that nothing will touch our lives that is not under the control and direction of our loving Heavenly Father. Everything we do and say, everything people do to us or say about us, every experience that we will ever have are all under the sovereignty of God and used by God. And as we saw last week in chapter uh, 28, verse 28, there was a, the scope of this promise as Paul seems to be so convicted and so assured 
that he's telling us that we know that there's something that we genuinely know that we can take to the bank because we need the assurance as what he says to us and we looked at several times in the past on the, the uh, previous verses talking about uh, the suffering at this present time are not worth comparing uh, with the glory that the Lord has revealed to, to us, uh, that there will be times when we will not understand what's going on in the world, uh, we will not understand what the hand of God hap- is happening to us, as I've, I've told people in trying to help them understand my own self and to others is that is that uh, nothing comes through the fingers of God unless God deems it to be good for us. And so all of the things that we experience for each other and with each other and for ourselves can be daunting. And this is why Paul writes that um, God gives to us that there is a time when we don't know We don't know what God is doing. We know the heart of God. We know the love of God. We know God has revealed himself to us in Christ and through the cross and through the resurrection and through giving us the Holy Spirit. But there are times when we are just lost and we have no idea what to pray for. And he says to us, but don't worry because the Holy Spirit, he has come and he is within you. And because he is the one who has executing the plan of God. The Father plans it. The Son, as you're going to hear me say that and Nate till we leave, <laughs> is that this is the, the plan of the Father. This is the, the, uh, the accomplishment of the Son. And this is the, uh, uh, the working out, the execution, the implementation of God's plan in our lives. It's through the Holy Spirit. And that's where I said, too, that uh, last week, though God is the subject of all of what's going on here, as he says, we all know that for those who love God, God works all things together for good. Then we realize that it is God the Holy Spirit, as we've been talking about and Paul's been writing to us in chapter 8, is that he is the one who is with us and is the one involved in making sure this is, in, this is working out in all of our lives. And so we see that that's why Paul can say without a shadow of doubt, we know this. No matter what happens in this world, we know this. Now, as I said said last week, the word word that's there for, uh, uh, it says, and we know that, we need to remember that it says that. It means uh, not how, but that God is doing this, that God works all these things together for good. It is not a time to ask the question how, because we don't know how God does it. We'll never know how God does it. Sometimes we, he gives us, you know, uh, I showed you a, a picture of a, a puzzle, right, last week, and all the different pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. The same thing comes from a tapestry, right? I've, I used to have a tapestry hanging on my wall in my college dorm back in my hippie days. And uh, uh, you could hold a beautiful picture up, right, on a butt. If you flipped it around, it looked like there were just strings going everywhere, and no one knew. If you hung that up with the strings hanging, somebody would look at this, what is this, your life in chaos, or what is this? And, but yet, if you flip it around, there's a beautiful picture, a beautiful pattern. And so we don't, you know, we don't know what all the, how it's all connected. We don't know how it all works. But we see that there's a, uh, uh, in this promise that God gives us, there's a, a scope 
to who it's for and, and to what it's, uh, and how, how big is it? And so we looked at the unlimited scope, right? We see that we, for we know that uh, all things, it means everything, as I said here, everything people do to us or say about us or every, everything we do or say or every experience that we will ever have, that all of these work together, and that's a promise. But the, but the limited scope of this is for who is this promise for, and it's very limited. God limits that scope, and he limits it to for those who love God. For, for those who are called according to God's purpose. And so we have to realize what does that mean because, as you, uh, you heard me last week say, that we can give this as a hopeful statement to somebody and try to help them when they go through things. Don't worry, God works it all out together for good and, and it sometimes can feel very abrupt and it can, feel, it can kind of diss us off and just feel like we just been okay, just get on with it, grow up and deal with it, or... They can tell us, oh, don't worry, it'll all work out. And it's kind of like placating or pacifying us to the, to, to the point of not really coming alongside of us. And that's what really is loving one another and discipling one another and making disciples and, and, and just being the body of Christ together. We really need to know that when we want to love one another and, and counsel one another we have the right understanding of this. So it doesn't mean that just because we have terrible experiences in this life that God has a better plan for us in this life because all of these things may get worse in our life. We will not get a good outcome in this life just because we read Romans 8.28. There is no promise anywhere that it will work out in this life. So we need to be careful that we don't tell people untruths, things that don't pertain to what the Scriptures teach. So it's limiting, right? It's limiting for only those who love God, and that who love God are the ones, as we've read in chapter 8, these are the ones that have decided no longer to live like Adam to now live like Christ, to those who now look at the world, look at themselves, look at creation, look at all the resources that God given us, looks at our, our, our own hearts, realizing that we are corrupt to the very core at the root of who we are, and that we need help. And then that's where we run to Jesus, because there, then that's, who, that's those who love God. They run to God because he is the only refuge they have. He, he is the only one who has listened to our cry and has a plan for us to be redeemed. And that's all been laid out for us in living great color in Romans 1 through uh, 8 until we get to this point. Just laid right out for us that he has died for us. He has given himself as a, a propitiation that his, our sins are turned away from God. Our shame and our guilt are all covered and taken away from us. This is what our life is like in Adam, but in Christ it's all taken away. And those are the ones who love God, who no longer give their lives, their mind, their bodies, all that they think, all they do, are all about how we glorify God, not how we glorify ourselves. And so for loving God now, we don't live like Adam, we live like Jesus, and that's the difference. That's the key thing about those who love God. 
We know that all things are working together and because God is in control. And remember I talked about concurrence, meaning going along with the currents and we have this major river of God's decree and nothing can stop it. But going into the river are all these streams and, uh, uh, and other uh, tributaries that are all the other things that go on in life, the things people say about us, the things people do about, to, to us what we do to other people, what we do to ourselves, Satan's schemes against us. He takes all of that within his river of God's sovereignty and decree and works them all together somehow, some way. That's why I say this isn't telling us how. This is telling us what, that we can hold on to this. We can take this to the bank because God is sovereignly in control of everything. And then he says here, those who, for those who are called, and that's a, we looked at several verses about what the calling was, and the calling is hearing the voice of God. And we're going to look at a little bit more, more different verses today because the word called comes up today because it's very, very important. Because God has called us by name, and he calls us out of this world, summoning us, right? Calling us, wooing us, summoning us with faith, to give us faith, because without faith, we cannot be justified. Without faith, we cannot please God. So when God calls us, now not the general call, not a call broadcasting out to the world. If I went to downtown Boston Spa or I had a, an, an event at, 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 at Spa and I'd sit up on a stage or stand up on a stage and give a message, that would be a broadcasting, right? That would be a general spreading of the word of God. But yet, it is not my work, but it is God's work now calling individuals within that group of people or whoever he wants to call to be, that, to be there, uh, to be disciples of Christ or to be followers of Jesus. And then it says here that are, that are calling, called according to his purpose. And so we looked at this and we say, well, what is this purpose, right? What is, what is the purpose? Well, then we, we went on to verses 29 and, and verse 30, and it says here, as we're going to look at it, it says, uh, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's two words that have caused a lot of printing in the years of all the years of, of, uh, of Christianity in all the theology over the centuries, these two words, foreknow and predestined. Well, for me, my understanding from this passage is that this isn't a place to discuss the, the, the differences uh, between them or necessarily read or study into uh, what the, why people differ. And I'm going to, a little bit, I'm going to talk about that. But I, don't, I, think, I think the separating or the, the people have a, an issue with the word foreknow, right? Or when does God foreknow? And that's the key thing here is, is saying that for those whom he foreknow. And, and what's key here is that verse 49 says, how do we know that this is true? Why do we, can we believe this? And verse 29 says the word for, and that's because. So here, here is this the very core, the very root of why we can believe that it's all going to work together because of something God has done in us and for us. For those 
And he's talking about a specific group of people. So the separation of, of, uh, of groups, like did God choose some and God choose others, which is some people don't like and some people love because of the fact that if we truly believe that we are the children of God, there's unbelievable mercy and grace of why did God even choose me? But the separation has already been done in verses 28 and 29 beginning. It's for those who are called according to God's purpose. It's for those whom love God. It's already talking about not everyone, but it's talking about a specific group of people. Instead, it says, because we can, we can believe this because something has happened in the mind of God, not in your life and my life, but in the mind of God. We're looking now at eternity past and eternity future in these verses. So we're not only looking up, on, you know, when I remember standing up on the Empire State Building, and I know I mentioned to you this before, watching all of New York City coming and going and flowing from east to west and north and south and people going all over the place, it's even a higher view than this. It's a view of eternity, what God has done from eternity past before there was anything till the, the Lord returns and until we are either with the Lord forever or we're very separated from him in hell. And so this is the view he's, he's giving to us, this view of looking at it. And so in the mind of God, there he did something for us. It says, for those whom. Now, for no can be, and I'll tell you some differences that people have had, and I had, because, again, it was my upbringing. It was the pastor that I was with, and his denomination, and his teaching, and his theological perspective taught me this. And we've talked about this. Is this saying that for those whom he foreknew. Is he saying that in eternity past, God looked at my life and realized that some way in the future that I was going to get my act together and that I was going to get smart enough and that I could figure this all out myself and I realized, you know, Jesus is a good way to go. He's the best way to go. Of all the other options in the world, he's the best way to go. And then from that foreknowledge, right, from foreknowing that, he then predestined me, as it says here, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, or be to be the firstborn among, uh, to be a, a, a brother of Christ. Is that what this is saying? And I don't think that it did. I believed it at the time because... I believed what my pastor was telling me, but the more I studied Scripture, I realized it says, for those whom he foreknew. It is not a thing that he knows. It's not a piece of information about me that he knows. It's me. He knows me intimately. It is not something that I've done, because if it's something that you and I have done, then it's not by grace, it's by works. So it can't be, even though there are many out there, and I don't know how many there are, but I know there's lots of churches and there's lots of Christians who believe that, who believe that God looked down in, in the future all the way back before eternity passed and saw a day that I was going to choose him. And then from my choice, he then predestined me to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And I don't believe that's true because it's a personal whom, right? It's not what, it's whom. For those whom. He foreknew.
The preeminence of Christ that we read about in, in this image of, of Jesus is that this is what Paul is, is pressing upon us, that this is what God is destining us for, is to be conformed to this image of Christ. And it says here that we've been uh, the firstborn among many brothers. He says in Colossians 1, of chapter 1, verse 15 through 18, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn among all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him are all things held together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So we see that when God is looking at us, God sees not us as anything in us to save us, but he sees something that is completely dead and completely impossible to pick its own destiny or to pick anything or to save themselves. Because he says here, for those he foreknew. And what does that mean biblically? And there's lots of verses that tell us this. And the key thing is, is, is to go back to how God deals with people in the Bible. And then what is the mechanism? What is the agreement how God has dealt with people from the Old Testament to the New Testament? And the word is covenant. To know God or to be known by God refers to his covenantal love in which he sets his affections upon us on those he desires to choose. What we see here is this, as uh, Nate talked about it, and it's the golden chain, which was a, a term used by, a, uh, actually coined by a, a Puritan, William Perkins, talking about these five verbs here. And so it's, it's again, he uses this, this chain of links of all these uh, different uh, verbs with us being the object, but God being the noun. God foreknew us. God predestined us. God called us. God uh, justified us. God glorified us. That's how it works. It's not about what we've done. It's nothing that we can be even counted for on our credit. And what does it mean to foreknow? It is to, the definition is to fix a regard upon, or to take note of. Deuteronomy says this, Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, and following. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be people, a people, for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people, that the Lord, here is what foreknow means, set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath and the covenant that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery." 
Exodus 33, and, uh, yeah, Exodus 33, 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Jeremiah 1, 5. Before I formed you into the womb, I knew you. Amos 3, 2. You you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Here we see in Romans 11.2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And Evan, you can put that slide up now, 44 slide. Just I I want you to see how important, how this is amazing. It says, this is uh, uh, Corinthians 8.3, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. That goes all the way back to the point of for those who love God. The only way we can love God is if we're known by God. If God knows who we are, then we can love God. If God has set his affections upon us, that's how we know God. That's how we love God. That's how we can serve God. Without God doing that in our lives... It will not work. It just is impossible. Galatians 4, 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world who slaves you, who slaves you were once Uh, I'm sorry, whose slaves you want to be once more. So we look at this whole thing of foreknowing. Foreknowing is setting God's love upon us, his affections. It's not looking back in eternity past and realizing that we get it because those who believe that believe that God's grace is working in their life, but God's grace isn't needed totally. God just primes the pump, and leaves us alone to figure it out. That's called provenient grace. And it's not, we don't need the help of the Holy Spirit for, for, to understand who Jesus is. We need the entire work of the Holy Spirit in our lives because left to ourselves, we are like Ezekiel 37. Dead, dry bones. So I hope you see that that it cannot be that God foreknew something about you and me that we would do because it would be works and it would just throw out the whole book of of Romans and the Bible because it would be you and me. It would be how smart we got it and how smart we are and how we got it right. So I hope you see that from those verses that it means that God sent his affections on us. Why? I don't know why. Why did he save you and me? I have no idea why. I I don't understand it, but I'm not going to figure it out. Why did he set his affections on Israel? Why not the Hittites or the Amorites or the Jebusites or the other termite family out there? Why didn't he figure this out? Why, why doesn't he do that? Is it fair? 
Is it fair that only God picked Israel and created Israel and not the others? Well, we don't need to get into that because that's all going to be taken care of and talked about in chapters 9 through 11 when we get there, which is going to be a while yet. That's when, we talk, that's when he talks about this God selecting some and selecting others. The selection has already been done. If Again, if you look at who is the scope of this for those who love God, who are called to his, according to his purpose. And so he says here now, for those he foreknew, now he predestines. And again, what is the definition of destined? The big thing here for me is the word foreknowledge. Any controversial, uh, any controversial understanding, we're going to get people who I've argued with, and because I was one of who used to argue, that foreknowledge, you know, that's the key here. That's the key word. Once we understand that God sets his affection upon us because we need his affection, and we realize that without God setting his affection upon us or his love or involving us in his love and his covenantal love of kessed love, steadfast love, we would never know who he is. If he did not do that, then we would never understand what it was to be under grace. Predestination is different. Even though predestination, we'll look at that when it comes up, it will, it will have the, the implications. There are verses in Bible translations that use the word chosen, and we see the word elect, but not here because it's not even using, he's not using that term here like that. He's talking about predestining somebody, which everybody hopes God does. Whether you believe in foreknowledge as God sees something you're doing or foreknowledge as we hopefully all believe and we see the Bible is that God loved us ahead of time. God set his love upon us before we ever loved him. And this is, a, the word is predestined, meaning that before mapping out or setting boundaries, the word, it's two words, pro meaning before, and the word is the word for horizon. That's where we get our word horizon from. And so what we do is that we hope as we look out in the horizon of time or we look out the horizon of the world, we don't know where to go. But God does, and he has mapped out for us a destination to go to that's guaranteed for you and me. It's a guaranteed mapped out place for us to go. He has chosen a destination for us, and he has set it in stone. Now, Jim's not going to think I'm going to talk about him, but I'm going to talk about him because I, I thought of this uh, illustration. When, you know, you all know that, well, anybody who was here a couple years ago knows that I had a great pleasure traveling with them, out to meeting them in Phoenix and playing some golf with Jim and, and uh, in their RV and, you know, spent some time, slept in the... Uh, the, uh, the mattress that made you feel safe at night, but when you woke up in the morning, you felt like a fly in a fly, uh, Venus flytrap. <laughs> Got sucked right up. But I had a great and glorious time. And something I did not know was that Jim and, and, and Terry already had a destination for me. I had no idea that they had a destination for me. Everybody in Saratoga County knew but me. I had no idea that I was going to the Grand Canyon. 
But they had Jim meticulously takes out a map and plots out the roads for wherever we go because he wants to guarantee that in his RV, the three of us got there. And that's what predestining is. Beforehand, Jim mapped out a plan for us to get to the Grand Canyon. Or when we needed a new mattress, he mapped out a plan to go to Target or Walmart in Flagstaff. Or to see different sites, right? Oh, this may be a good route. Maybe we'll go this way. And you could see him mapping it out. And that's what God has done for us. When God has set his love upon us, and wants us to be in the family because he says here that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. That means that not only the Childs nor the Thompsons want to have a big family, but have God wanted to have many brothers and sisters, he wanted to grow a big family. And Jesus is the big brother. And he's the firstborn, as I read in from Colossians, he's not only the firstborn, but he's the preeminent firstborn. He's the one who's in charge of everything. And he is also the very first installment that we have in the new creation. Because when he said it is finished, he means that the old creation is gone and the new creation is beginning. And so what Jesus has come and now raised from the dead and now given a a new body, a glorified body, is the very beginning of the new creation itself. So Jesus is that firstborn in that whole new order of life that you and I can live no longer like Adam, but now live every day of our life in a new order because we're new creatures in Christ. And so we see this predestined, marked out beforehand to be conformed to the image of Christ, not only inwardly, but outwardly. Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, but Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God had mapped it out in history. God had planned it to happen. Now, you and I are going to be in the same destination, but how God gets us there is very different. As Hebrews tells us, the race that we run is all different. We're all in the same race. The race is to be, to God hold upon us, to be persevering, to be faithful to the gospel, to live like Christ as we wait for God to bring us to that point. Because he who began a good work in us, right? Whatever is good. For those who foreknew God, I'm sorry, for those who, uh, for those who love God and are called according to uh, for, together for the good, meaning that all this is good. So what's good? God, God's purpose, his plan for us to go to heaven, his plan for us to look like Jesus, his plan for us to be a part of a family of God. That's the good that God has in store for us. And we're all destined to get to the time and the place when we get to that new creation that will be in heaven with the Lord and then Someday when he returns, it'll all be recreated and we'll all have our bodies, new bodies like Jesus, never to be corrupt, 
never to sin, never to sin against again, never to feel any pain and suffering again, never to have any sorrow again. That's the destination that God has for us. So God has mapped it out. But each and every one of us don't necessarily go on the same roads to get there. Because some roads are straighter. And some roads are over mountains and in valleys. And some of them have gigantic crevices and potholes. And some of them have storms. And some of them have blizzards. And some of them have sunshine. And some of them have both. We don't know, but God works all that together for every individual. That's why he loves us individually. He calls us by name, individually, so that we all know that we can all believe that we can trust that we know that God is going to work everything for good. He's going to work everything because it's God who's doing it. Ephesians 1 chapter 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, in love, right? Setting his love upon us. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, grace, which he's lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose. It's, these are all the buzzwords that are found in Romans 8, 28, and 29, and 30, and all. It's all these buzzwords, his purpose, his will, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, right? Having been gone to that purpose of God, to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Oh my goodness, can you see the dots all being connected? So that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be the praise of his glory, Or Ephesians 3, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, who was given me, who was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone. Uh, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be known, made known to rulers and authority in the heavenly places. This was according to his eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, he says, do not lose heart. Paul is looking from eternity to eternity. This whole thing doesn't violate my choice or your choice. 
This is something that we des- we're thankful that it was God's choice. We saw the call, right? We saw the call. The, the, it says here, it says, not only did he, for, he foreknow them, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son, to be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he called. So now we see, we talked about last week, this, this calling, this summoning voice of God. And if you go back to the Ezekiel 37, you remember when Paul, when um, Ezekiel saw this vision of these valley of dry bones, God says to him, cry out, call out, dry bones. And that's what this call is. It's God calling us, Christ calling us, you and I. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came, when I came to you, brothers, did not... Uh, when I, when I, excuse me, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear with much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in your wisdom, but in the power of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit calling us, summoning us, giving us the faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. It's, it's everywhere in the scriptures. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with conviction. That's the work of the Spirit, giving us a sense of who we are, knowing that we need this faith, and so the Spirit of God convicts our heart to run to Jesus. We see it really clearly pictured in Acts chapter 16 when it talks about Lydia. Acts 16, verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. What a picture. The Spirit of God comes. The calling of God opens our hearts, gives us faith to follow Jesus. Because we see in eternity past, we see that in the mind of God, he knows us. In the mind of God, he predestines us. We see that now he, when he, he has called us, we see now he says that he justifies us. And we talked about justification many weeks because it's been everywhere in the beginning in this whole book. And what is it? It's an act of justice. It's God sitting in the throne of heaven, in the courtroom of heaven, and he says, you are a sinner. And, ex- and, and justice needs to be executed on you, Jim. And so somebody needs to pay the price of your disobedience and your covenant breaking. And so he just doesn't say, go ahead, Jim, I'll let you go. I feel good today. He doesn't say, it's, it's, it, 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 we're running a sale. Don't worry about a thing. It's all taken care of. No, he says, 
It needs to be executed. We want to judge who is going to be just and who is going to be law-abiding. And what does he do? He does. He executes the justice upon Jesus. And so now you and I, being justified, right, by faith, we need the calling, right, because the calling brings faith. And unless we have faith, we cannot be justified. So that's why the calling comes before. And the calling with faith, now we are justified by faith in God's courtroom, no longer to stand before God, no condemnation, never worrying about our sins in the past or the future because God put them on Christ. And he who had no sin became sin so that we may become people who have look on the record like we've never been sinning in our life or never have sinned or never will sin again. That's what justification is. That's the wow of this. Because if it depends on you and me, look at how it just drains the grace and the power of justification. It just deadens it. So, we come to the word glorification. And so it says here in Romans 8, 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provide we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. He's been talking about the word glory here. And then in Romans 8, 28, 21, excuse me, uh, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of this is our hope. He says this is where this is the hope of glory that we have, right? That God is going to redeem our bodies. Is that there's an inward uh, and an outward sanctification. Our bodies are going to be redeemed, but inwardly, it says that in 2 Corinthians, now the Lord is the Spirit, chapter 3. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is what's going on inside of us. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? We read in Galatians. This is how we know what it is to live like Christ. We, we read in, in 1 and in John that, right, it says here that we, are, we now need to walk with Christ. If we do something outward, something inwardly happens to us, it needs to be shown outwardly. Something inwardly has to be shown outwardly. So John says in 1 John chapter 3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet uh, appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is a glorified body. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. 
This is the key. This is where he says, notice the word glorification, as you can see it, is in the past tense. It's already happened, glorified. In the eyes of God, it is finished. Jesus says it's finished. It's all done. Everything that we need is accomplished by Christ. So in the mind of God, in the eyes of God, we are already glorified. Even though we're working this out, this progressive salvation in our life, in the eyes of God, we are as holy as we're ever going to be. And then our bodies are waiting for us. For the Lord is waiting for us all when he comes that we will all be changed in an instant, Paul writes in Corinthians 15. And then we will know God, we will see, I mean, we will know the Lord and we will see him descend upon earth with his glorified body. Then we will look and before we know it in an instant, our bodies are going to be like that. That's the purpose of God. That's the good of God. That's conforming to the image of Christ. That's what Romans is all about. Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30. It's about God having a plan. So we're going to suffer, but he says this is the core. This is the very confession of your heart, the very confession of your faith. This is what's going to keep you from being tossed and turned. We may not like it. As I read last week, Job cried. He tore his clothes when, the, when the God took away his family and everything that he had. But what did he do? He turned and he worshiped God. He trusted in God's sovereignty. He had no idea what God was doing to him. And neither do we at times. And so, but this is the bedrock of our faith. This is what it means for the good. When we come alongside each other, we don't know what God is going to do in our life. I have no idea of all the accidents in this world we've had in our families and the cancer and broken relationships and disappointments and loss of jobs, loss of finances, loss of friends, loss of family, loss of everything. I don't know why. But God tells me that it's all going to be okay in eternity. That he is working all these things and some of the things that he's doing with us as in the book of Revelation, right? We read about this suffering and we see when the scrolls are opened up and all this tribulation is poured out, it is for the, the, uh, the punishment to those who are disobedient or it is for the sanctification of the saints. It is to purify the saints as these things unfold during the tribulation, which I believe is going on as we're in this great trip, uh, tumult of, of since the Lord coming and till he comes again, the church through all ages has been suffering. As I said in our, my Bible study the other night, I mean, you don't think that in Nero's time, lighting up Christians on fire, torching their bodies, tying them to poles, lining up the streets of Rome with burning bodies of Christians who are still alive, that's not tribulation, that's not suffering, that's not the hope that they need is to understand that nothing can separate them from the love of Christ? Because it begins with chapter 8. What does it begin with? It says, therefore... There is no condemnation, and it ends. There is no separation. So we see these great bookends, but in the middle, middle of this story of hope, the assurance, our eternal security is based upon us trusting in God's work in Christ. 
F.F. Bruce says, sanctification is glory begun. Glorification is sanctification completed. It's the blessed assurance that we have. The assurance of knowing that everything depends upon our understanding of who God is. And how we should encourage one another, as it says here, and this is what these words are for, to encourage each other yourselves, your family, your other believers, you get together. These are the words that encourage us. We don't know what to say, but we can come alongside them and be present and moan along with them and cry along with them, not saying anything that is not biblically untrue. But you know that all these things, that ultimately God is working for our sanctification, that there's someday this is all going to be over with, and I'm sorry that you're going through this, and if I can help you in any way, if we can love you in any way, this is why we're here. But just don't pacify them. Just don't hit them with a hammer. That's the way we learn to love one another, when we understand these scriptures. Next time, we're going to look at verses 31 through 39. Not in one time, but 31 through 39. And what does Paul do there? He celebrates the security that we have in our faith. He celebrates the security. At the end, he goes, nothing on earth can separate us. And wow, that's all things and nothing. Those are big, expansive words that means that God is completely in control. May God be encouraging us as we hear him. May the Spirit of God encourage you and me in our faith. May, we, may God give us the abilities to be these vessels of God's grace. May we find ourselves, based upon our understanding of this, hopefully if you've, you know all this, this is all old news to you, but this is refreshing and encouraging so that we will pray to God, let us be an instrument of grace in somebody's life. Let me come alongside someone and be an encouragement to them through deeds, through words, through prayers, just by being present, by saying nothing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we truly thank you for these words of hope and faith here today, that these words are, have been the most encouraging words to the saints since they were written and given to us. And yet, Lord, we know that in your word, in the Old Testament, we have the same words. We've been told that, that your mercies are new every morning. We are told that you love us and that you will never leave us nor forsake us, that you have called us to be your people and your chosen possession, treasured possession, and that you set your love upon us and that whether the seas come and, and, and the waters rise or, the, or the, the fires get hot, nothing will separate us. Nothing can consume us. Nothing can take away our faith in you, Lord. If we have been called, if you began a work in us, if, Lord, if you changed our wills, as you tell us in Philippians, that you have changed our will and given us the ability to do what you ask. If you have given us new life, if you have changed us in our hearts, if we focus upon the gospel, Lord, these are the things that are anchors for our souls. As the tide rises, 
as it ebbs and flows, as the wind blows, as the storms come, as the heat scorches us. Lord, these are the things of eternal life. This is the security that we can truly believe in, that our that you have begun a work in us, and you will see it to the end. You persevere with us. You give us the promise that we will never, ever lose our faith in you. You give us the promise that all of these are real, and yes, and amen in Christ. You tell us all these things so that they are our hope now. And so, Lord, may we be refreshed by these words now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.